Good morning. I'm Brand Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting, uh, let me too welcome you. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, for the rest of you, thanks so much for praying for my family this past week. We were, we were way sick, but we're much better now. Uh, my voice has been in and out, so you can pray that'll keep up, but I, I feel much better than I sound. And appreciate, too, for camper pinch hitting in the last minute last week. Thank you. That's not easy to do, and I appreciate it. Uh, we're, uh, this uh, spring, we're in a series, winter and spring, we're on a series uh, back in Mark, where we were a year ago. A year ago, we looked at the first half of the Gospel of Mark, chapters 1 through 8, and we're picking up now in chapter 9. This will be our second week in this part of the series. Again, looking at what Mark has to tell us about Jesus, the King, the King who has come. The fact that Jesus is our King, that He has come, and what that means for us in our um, following Him and knowing Him. This morning we're going to be in chapter 9, verses 14 through, 10, through 29. You'll find that on page 844 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll read. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning having sung your praises, having been invited into your presence, having come to you in prayer, having voiced our confession, having heard your assurance of pardon. Father, thank you for um, including us in the worship of heaven. And you do that for our good as well as for your glory. And we come to you now and to your word, this too an act of worship. Would we come with worshipful hearts? Would you give us ears that are open to hear and hearts that are open to receive, hands that are open to take what you have to give us? Lord, we come to you in our need, to you the sufficient one. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Mark 9, 14 through 29. Uh, and when they, this is Jesus and uh, Peter, James, and John, when, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed. They ran up and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and fell on the ground, and he rolled around, uh, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. Saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. If you were here last week, 
or just look at the passage right before this first part of chapter 9. It it was the scene of the transfiguration. Jesus has gone up on a mountaintop with Peter, James, and John, three of his closest disciples. And there, while they're up there, um, Elijah and Moses appear from heaven. And uh, Jesus radiates this uh, bright glory. He is just bathed in the glory of God. And he is transfigured before him. He is, he's changed. He's, he, he's shown that j- just a glimpse of Jesus in his glory for the disciples. And they're just in awe, bafflement at what's happening. It's this incredible, and this is maybe where the phrase comes from, this incredible mountaintop experience for these disciples. They see heaven opened up. Well, what happens after this, when they come back down the mountain. Well, that's what we see in our passage today. We see that after the mountaintop experience, uh, after the week at summer camp, uh, after the great retreat or the great time of prayer, what happens? You walk back into all the realities of your daily world, right? They come down off the mountain and see uh, a scene of just utter chaos all around them because they come down and our scene this morning takes place where our lives take place in the very mess of life. And so in this passage, we're going to see that, um, that God's got a lesson for us here or a, um, something that he desperately wants us to grab hold of, and it's, and it's this, that in the mess of this, of our real lives and our real world, that we um, are called to have faith. That in the, in the midst of all the struggles of life uh, and the daily disappointments, all the highs and the lows, we are called to be gripped by a faith in God. So much so that if, if we don't have that, we won't actually be able to walk in relationship with God. The craziness and the mess of this world will utterly flatten us. But what we see here in this text is that we are called to be a people of faith, defined by it, marked by it. So we're going to see that in three things this morning. We're going to see first the call to faith, the cry of faith, and then finally the communication of faith. So first, the, the call to faith. Again, as this scene opens up, Jesus and his, the three disciples, they come down and, and see this, this scene of chaos. There's a crowd there, and people are arguing. And as Jesus comes in and says, what are you arguing about? It turns out that the, the, the scribes, the, the scribes along with the Pharisees group uh, in Israel, of the, the legal experts that were often the head-to-head opponents with Jesus and enemies of his agenda for what it means to follow God. So there the scribes are. They're arguing with the disciples. And it doesn't say what the argument was about, but somehow it's centered around the fact that someone has come to Jesus to have his son healed, have a demon cast out, and the disciples were unable to do it. The disciples had been sent out on trips of ministry before where they were empowered for things like this. And so they're as baffled as everybody else, but there's this fight going. You get, the scribes are jumping on them, and, and everything's in chaos, and Jesus walks down into this. And as he asks what happened, there's, there's one voice that kind of rises above the crowd as the din settles, and, and we hear the voice of a man who says, uh, I, I came with, with my son who's uh, possessed by a spirit that's trying to destroy him, and I, and I came and asked your disciples to heal him, and they couldn't, um, and if, if you can do anything, you know, w- would, you take, would you take pity on me? Would you have compassion on us and heal my son? See, Jesus walks down into a scene 
that where these people are experiencing and maybe felt most poignantly by this father, a situation in which God's power seems to be so glaringly absent. That it is a time of great need, and where is God in the middle of a situation like this? You ever feel that way? Kind of look around at your own life, maybe the lives around you, the world around us, and all you see is brokenness and confusion and seemingly an absence of God's power and God's presence. Maybe you see it when someone you love is struggling and wandering from God. Maybe when your family life is strained and it's difficult and it's getting worse. Maybe when your job is on the line or your health is in decline or temptation is rising and threatening to consume you, does it seem that God's power and his presence are just absent? Well, that's what these people are feeling. Jesus comes down and speaks a word of of pointed uh, verdict into this in verse 19. He looks around and he says, O faithless generation. He doesn't look around and say, O generation, I can't believe you think life is broken and hard. He doesn't say, O generation, I can't believe there are such things as evil spirits that would possess a boy. I can't believe that there are things like scribes who would be enemies. I can't believe that there would be chaos and crowd. No, he looks around and he says, O faithless generation. You who are caught in the midst of this, yet with no faith. See, in the midst of the realities of their life, they don't see and connect with God. It says, O faithless generation. And who hears that? The scribes, the ones at the heart of the argument. The crowd running around in confusion. The disciples who have not been able to heal, don't know why, maybe disillusioned themselves. And certainly the father in the middle of this too. Jesus says, oh, faithless generation. I think Jesus is having one of those, um, and maybe here we see some of the, the power of his humanity, his godly humanity, but his humanity nonetheless, when he has one of those when will you ever get it moments, right? How long am I going to put up with you? But it's not just exasperation. It is Jesus feeling the weight of why he is there, I would say, as well. His face is already set towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. Oh, faithless generation. Before my eyes is the very reason that I have come and the very reason that I am going to die. This accusation that um, they brought to Jesus, essentially, where is God? His power is absent. This feeling that uh, God is not able to meet meet us in what we most need. We see it maybe most sharply in the words, and understandably in the words of this father. Again, verse 22, and he says, you know, your disciples couldn't do it. And then he, he challenges essentially two things about Jesus. He challenges Jesus' concern and Jesus' power. He says, if you are able, would you have compassion? Is it possible that you have the power to do this, Jesus? Because I'm not sure that you do. And is it possible that you would be compassionate enough, if you do have that power, to use it on behalf of my son? We see in verse 23, Jesus, as he so often does, he flips the accusation, the the whole argument on its head. When he says this, he looks back at me and says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. In other words, Jesus is saying to this man, to this father, there is no shortage of power and presence of God here. This is not a question of the adequacy of God. This is a question of the presence of faith. See, he's brought the question right back to this father's doorstep. We hear this um, 
call to faith from Jesus. But secondly, we see here, as he brings it back to the feet of this father, we see, secondly, the, the cry of faith. How is he going to respond to Jesus' statement that all is possible for him who believes? Now, remember, for, um, for this man, this is not an academic question. You know, he and Jesus are not sitting back in armchairs in a local coffee shop, sipping lattes, and talking about the philosophical nature of uh, true faith and what that involves. You know, he has come to Jesus in a, in a place of incredible need with what is most precious to him, the life of his son. That's, those are the stakes for this father as he comes to Jesus. The son says, who is possessed by an evil spirit that gives him these epileptic-like seizures. He says, verse 21, this has been going on for some time since childhood. And it says in verse 22, he says, you know, the, the intent of this is to destroy this child. This is not just a minor uh, inconvenience in life. You know, he, he's not coming to Jesus with his child who is lame, although Jesus would have been glad to welcome him as well. He's coming to him with his son who is on the verge of being destroyed by utter darkness, thrown into the water, thrown into the fire. The son's very life is at stake. In fact, as soon as Jesus starts asking about it, he gets thrown into one of these fits right there at Jesus' feet. You thought the scene was chaotic before. Here he is in the middle of it, right there before Jesus. It's not an academic question for the Father. And truthfully, it's, it's not an academic question for you and for me when we have these questions either. Maybe that for you, you're in a situation um, of deep crisis like this man is here. Or maybe it's more than just the mundane realities of life. You too have this question. I do have this question. Can I, can I trust God, as, as one author puts it, with, with the fine china of my life? With, with the things that are most valuable and most breakable. Can, can I trust God with those? Does he care and does he have the power? Jesus, if you can, if you can, Jesus, if you can, meet me in my struggle with singleness. Jesus, if you can breathe hope into my marriage. Jesus, if you can meet me in my failing health. Jesus, if you can bring some sort of order out of the chaos that is my family life. Jesus, if you can sustain me as a parent. Jesus, if you can meet me in the pressures and struggles and temptations of high school. Jesus, if you can forgive the dark and secret places of my life. Jesus, if you can make something out of the mess that I'm making out of my life. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? All things are possible for him who believes. But he's a man who doesn't have much faith. He's already shown that. What's he going to say? His response, verse 24, he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Do you hear the, the beauty of that response? Just the stark honesty of it? I, I believe. I, I'm here. But I, I'm not sure I believe. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe I have faith faith, but not very much. I believe, but you've got to help my unbelief, Jesus. I want to trust you, Jesus, and I do, but just a little. I trust you, but I'm struggling to trust you. Help. Help my unbelief. I've got a friend who in, in high school used to play a game with another friend of his. And what they would do is um, they would try to go as long as they could without taking their cars to the gas station to fill up. 
and they would try to see who could run out of gas on the way to school in the morning, but be the one who runs out of gas closest to the school. If you're the closest, you win. And so, so what you're really shooting for is that you sort of turn into the parking lot kind of sputtering on fumes, and then you just sort of slowly roll to a stop in your, in your parking spot on, on no gas. If you can do that, then you, you win. And that's what's going on here with this man. Uh, the needle is buried on E on his dashboard. His engine is sputtering. But he's bringing just the little pitiful amount that he has to Jesus. He is coming to Jesus, cruising in on fumes. It is all that he has. It is all the faith that he has. Is it going to be enough? We see what Jesus does next. He heals his son. He casts out the demon. He comes in and meets the father and the son at their point of greatest need. On fumes. On that much little faith. One of the commentaries I read on this, the, had a, the title of this section in the commentary was Frail Faith in a Strong Savior. That's what this man had. Frail Faith and a strong Savior. Frail faith, that little, lame, struggling faith, is enough for Jesus. Elsewhere, Jesus had said, you know, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, this little speck of faith. And we're told here, too, that Jesus meets us in our frail faith. Don't let the paucity of your faith, don't let the want of your faith, don't let the lameness the amount of faith that you feel right now keep you from Jesus. It's easy for us to forget that. God wants us, of course, to grow in our faith, to grow strong in faith, but we need to hear again that He does not despise the smallest flicker of faith, and therefore neither should we. We shouldn't despise it in ourselves if it's we, what we see is all that we have, and we shouldn't despise it in those around us either. If we're going to be a healthy church, then we should have the whole spectrum in our church of people all along the road of following Jesus and learning to come and know Him. He takes that speck, that flicker of faith, and He honors it and He does something with it. One commentator put it this way, True faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. The Father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has, when he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. And Jesus meets him right there. Because the frail faith is not the more important part of the equation. It is frail faith in a strong Savior. This is the hinge of the whole story here, and it's the hinge of your story and my story. It's not about the strength of our own faith, but it's about the strength of the one in whom we put our faith. And it matters greatly in whom we put our faith. Paul Tripp, an author and counselor, uh, tells the story of uh, hearing his kids screaming out in the yard one day. He and his wife come running out, and one of his kids is is on the ground, and uh, what had happened was that his kids were playing baseball, and one of them swung and hit the other uh, in the head. And that kid is, is on the ground, and, and he, he 
he rushes, Paul, Paul Tripp says he, he rushes to his son and gathers him up and he says, are you okay? And there's chaos everywhere. His brothers and sisters are all bawling. And, and the child, though, appears, he's bleeding, but he appears so calm. And his dad says, what, why are you so calm? And he says, because it's going to be okay, Daddy, because you're a doctor. And Paul Tripp at that point said, I have a Ph.D. <laughs> My son doesn't know the difference, but that's not the kind of doctor he needs right now. And he talks about the beauty of this child's faith, but it was in the wrong object. Because this boy had strong faith in a weak Savior. And we're told here in the story, we're exhorted to come and bring our faith, our weak, frail faith, to a strong Savior. To the one who steps into the middle of all this chaos. To the one who did not stay on top of the mountain in glory. Who did not disappear back to heaven with Elijah and with Moses, but instead trudged right down, back down the mountain to the place where he came from, out of the glory, out of the light, into the muck and mire of our confused, chaotic, wrestling with life. This Jesus who came down, who did not go away, but came back, that he might bring the very presence of God here, into the midst of the chaos, into the midst of the mess, into the midst of this point of tragedy and emergency for this father and for his possessed child into the very need of the disciples who can't seem to get it together and don't know what's happened into the midst of a crowd that's struggling with should we believe in this person Jesus or not see the very strong savior who stands at the heart of this story is none other than Jesus himself the one who surely would have had compassion for a father who saw his son suffering and on the verge of death. Because Jesus stands there as the son who is headed towards suffering and not the threat of death, but the surety of death. Jesus is able to come and rescue this boy and restore him to his father because Jesus is going to go through a trial by which he is ripped away from his father. And all hope for a time is lost. This Savior, this Jesus, this God in the flesh who came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Where is the hope? Where is the center of our faith? It is here in our strong Savior. In our strong Savior, Jesus. You see, the Father's prayer is met. Not because his faith measured up, but because his faith was put in the right person. It was put in Jesus. So we see Jesus, he, he, he calls us to faith and he calls out to this faithless generation and he confronts this man who ultimately cries out in the little bit but enough faith that he has. We see something here too of the communication of faith. How is this faith going to be communicated to us? And maybe another way to put it, how are we going to communicate to God in a voice of faith? How are we going to come, especially if we come with that very weak and frail faith ourselves. There's a lot in Scripture about how we can be people who grow in faith. Um, uh, theologians call these, uh, many of them, the means of grace, the, the, the means by which God draws us ever closer to himself, the means by which God strengthens our faith. Well, there is one of the means of grace that Jesus focuses on here, and maybe we missed it. We are told here that if we're going to be people of faith, if we're going to bring even the little bit of faith that we have to Jesus, we're going to have to come in prayer. That's what we see here. 
Look in verse 29. The disciples, after this whole episode, they understandably, they come to Jesus and say, okay, the crowd's gone. What went wrong? You know, Jesus, we tried to heal this guy. We tried to cast out this demon, and, and he wouldn't, it wouldn't work. What happened? And Jesus turns to them and gives what feels on the surface like the somewhat cryptic response of this kind only comes out by prayer. Now, does that mean there are, you know, the non-prayer demons and the prayer demons, like the ones that are sort of easy to do on your own, and then there are the hard cases where you've got to remember to pray? I mean, Jesus' disciples at earlier points in the ministry had been sent out to minister in Jesus' name, and part of what they did was cast out demons. Well, maybe what has happened to them is they've thought, you know, we got the touch now, right? He's anointed us for ministry. He sent us out. Come on, bring the boy. Bring him here to us, right? And what does Jesus come and say? No, you must pray. Because what does prayer represent? It represents an exercise of faith towards our God. In fact, it represents an exercise of our dependence on God. The very faith that says we don't have what it takes for this situation, but Jesus, you do. When he says this to them, he's saying not just this demon, any demon. He's saying not just this, any act of ministry. He says not just this, any way in which you would follow me in this world. You must pray. You must come in faith. And that faith will only be bolstered and built as you come to me in prayer. That's what he's saying to the disciples. But that is also the lesson that is being learned by the Father in this story. Now, he comes to Jesus and he gets down to that moment, that crisis of faith for him. What's he going to do? And he cries out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. What is he doing when he is speaking to Jesus? He's actually doing much more than he would have realized himself at the time. What he's actually doing is praying. He's speaking to God. Speaking to God in the flesh, who's right there in front of him. I believe. Help my unbelief. I don't have any faith, so I'm coming to you in prayer. Help me. I have little faith. And I think what we see here is that if we are going to grow in faith, we must pray. Now, that might well sound backwards to you, doesn't it? Because maybe you think this, look, if I had great faith, then I'd pray. <laughs> if, I, if I really believed God was, existed, I'd pray. If I really thought he was at work in the situations around me, I'd pray. I tried praying. I didn't see anything happen. If I had faith, then I'd pray. But Jesus says, actually, we have it backwards. That in many times, prayer comes first and faith follows. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever had the experience maybe where you sit down to pray and you're there because you know you need to be and uh, your prayers begin as dry as dust, but you keep praying? And have you ever had the experience where something starts to shift? Somehow the burner gets lit and it starts to warm up and you begin to actually pray. And at the end you think, I'm so glad I stopped to pray. And I didn't stop in the first two seconds when it was as dry as dry could be. Maybe you've had opportunities to pray, and like me, you've let many of those pass by, but maybe sometimes you've taken advantage of those. Maybe you've had that opportunity in the middle of the night when you're up with a crying baby and you're walking around the house and jiggling to beat the band and just hoping he or she'll be quiet, and you stop and think, I could be praying right now. And I've had some of those times. 
Sometimes I've done it and thought, you know, there's a lot more going on tonight than just my baby crying. Jesus wanted me up praying for me. We're called to pray. Prayer is one of those connections by which God grows our faith. And so let me just give us um, just a couple brief uh, ideas on prayers, a couple of handholds maybe for this week, both of which I, I believe come from originally from the Puritans. Here's one of the things they used to say. Pray as you can, not as you can't. Pray as you can, not as you can't. Maybe like me, you've had those times where you've been convicted of prayer or something else, and, and you think, okay, I'm the world's worth prayer. So here's what I'm going to do. Starting tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up and I'm going to pray for an hour solid before the sun comes up because Jesus likes those more. But I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pray. And, and how, how many, how'd that go for you? You know, that, that's a little like, you know, I see those people jogging around my neighborhood. I've never run, but hey, I think I'll go run a marathon. You know, I'm, I'm up for that. Puritans would say something maybe wiser to us. Pray as you can, not as you can't. Okay, if you come with your uh, four-second attention span, come with your four-second prayers. Come and begin. Come and pray. If you can pray for five minutes, then, you know, that day you hit ten minutes, you can be thankful. Come and pray as you can, not as you can't. You come to pray and you don't feel that you have the words and you don't sound like a formal worship service. It is okay. Jesus speaks your language. Come with the words that you have. Pray as you can, not as you can't. You see, it's an invitation for us to come and pray authentically. It's an invitation to come and pray knowing that we don't have to fake anything and we don't have to fear anything because it's God who's invited us in to pray. Begin where you are. So pray as you can, not as you can't. Second thing uh, that they also said was, pray until you have prayed. In other words, pray until you know you've prayed. Maybe like that prayer that begins dry as dust. Some days you're going to pray that prayer. It's going to feel like dust all the way through. And you can still know that God hears it felt like to you like it just bounced off the ceiling. But God hears it. There's also encouragement here. But there are times when we need to pray until we prayed. God, I'm not going anywhere until you do something with this stubborn, cold heart of mine. I'm not going anywhere until you help me move from where I am right now, which is you're nowhere to be found and my life is a shambles and you don't care. Your Bible says that's not true. So I'm going to stay here and pray until my heart knows it. You've got to meet me and show me. and You've got to make it come alive for me. But I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. The Puritan said, pray until you've prayed. The father stayed and prayed until he'd gotten what he needed. He came and the disciples couldn't provide it and he didn't leave. Jesus showed up and he came to Jesus and he asked and he stood there and Jesus gave him exactly what he needed. So may we be a people who pray. And here's one last little nugget. Start with prayers for help if those are the only prayers that you have. Those are okay. That was the prayer of this man when he came to Jesus. He didn't come ready to worship. He didn't come ready to follow Jesus to the cross. He came with a need. And he came 
and brought it to Jesus and said, help. One of our children, Hannah, our almost two-year-old, she's, uh, she's got an expanding vocabulary of, of words. She's gaining more words every few days. And just in the past couple of weeks, she started saying, help. And so there she is. She's our most independent child, too. So she'll go get the bowl and spoon in the morning, pull out the cereal. And then when she gets to the point of pouring the cereal, which she can't do, then she'll say, help. <laughs> Come in now and, and help. And you pour the cereal for her. And she goes about her way. Uh, she's learned to ask for help. Uh, the other day, I was sitting in a chair, and she came up to me with one of those little canisters of Play-Doh, and she pu- held it out to me, and she said, help. So I took the top off, and I said, okay, Hannah, go back to the room back there with the little play table and play Play-Doh there. So she takes off, and a few minutes later, she comes back with the Play-Doh out of the container in her hand, and she says, help. And she kind of pulls me along. So I walk in with her into the other room to where the table is. And she has out one of these little, she's got a little Play-Doh stamp. You can roll out the Play-Doh and stamp a little image in it. So she looks at that and she says, help. So I say, okay. So I flatten out the Play-Doh for her and I pick up the little stamp and I push it into there. I say, there you go. And then she tries it, looks at me, and I'm getting ready to go. And she says, help. So finally I realized... um, that Hannah, when she says help, she's saying more than one thing. She is saying, please help me. I, I, I have a need. Can, can you meet that need? But further, she is saying, be with me. Stay here. I want to be with you. And so if help is the only prayer that we have, that is an okay place to start. And may, by God's grace, that prayer for help turn into a prayer not only for those things that we need, but for a call to our Father, saying to Him, come be with me. I want to be with you. That's where I want to be. Let's pray together. Father, we do cry out to you. And you really do want to be with us. And you've proven it on the cross. There is no higher price you could have paid. Not only did you show it to us, you actually did it. You accomplished it. You won us our freedom. You won us back to yourself. You've given us the forgiveness of sins in Jesus so that we can be with you. So, Father, we cry out to you, help and help. In the name of Jesus, amen.